I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the Mark Boris Podcast. Okay. Good morning. Uh, here we are. I'm standing up here at the King's Cross studio looking straight down William Street. It's absolutely belting down. Um, and I want to give my sympathy to those people who are actually suffering during this period with all the, the bad weather. Um, but it's been pretty horrendous, actually. Anyway, um, this is week three. This is my third go at this. I'm, enjoy- I'm enjoying I'm really having a good time, uh, particularly enjoying it because there's no one telling me what to do and what not to do. And I can actually say what I like um, and on what topics I like. And I'm trying to keep them relevant, and I want to thank you for all your feedback. Um, and uh, I'm trying to get it better and better as we go each week. This week's top five. My top five this week, or well, as you know, I talk about the top five each week. Um, that is uh, basically uh, letting you know what I think is important given all the stuff that's been written in the newspapers. What are the top five things you need to know coming out of this week's, last week's publications? Well, commodity prices um, on the on that matter, there has been a slight rise, and that's been a consistent rise in commodity prices, particularly iron ore. But it's nothing that's going to take us into the territory where we were, say, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago. It's not enough. Bottom line is, commodity price increases are definitely not enough or showing enough trend to encourage mining companies to start investing back in this economy. That's what it's about. Will mining companies invest back in this economy? Will we get our uh, GDP up as a result of mining companies thinking the commodity prices have enough trajectory to reinvest in this country and to start employing more people? The answer is no, not happening. So that's where the commodity prices are. Um, um, global economy, um, look, global economy is doing okay. China's sort of slipping back a little bit. Japan, of, of course, is flat as usual. Europe is ha- having all sorts of problems, uh, not the least of which is going on in Greece. Um, the US is starting to pick up. Um, so much so that there is some talk, murmurs in the US about an increase in interest rates as a result of potential increases in inflation in the United States of America. If there is, see, sometimes inflation is a good thing. It's a good indicator. It means that there is aggregate demand for products and services growing, so much so that the people who supply the products and services, you know, shopkeepers, retailers, manufacturers, etc., feel as though that they have enough confidence to increase their prices just a little bit. And that increase in prices obviously changes inflation, which indicates to their Federal Reserve in America, the same as our RBA, that it may be time to start to increase interest rates. Importance of this is if they start to increase interest rates in the US as a result of feeling more confident around inflation growing, strength in aggregate demand, that means in Australia the Aussie dollar is going to cop it in the neck. And that's important for us. Okay, on the matter of inflation, well, nothing has come out to suggest anything's going on inflation, but today's the day. Today's the day that the inflation numbers come out. As I said, the inflation number comes out, or otherwise known as a CPI number, comes out the month after the end of every quarter. So the quarter ended in March. This is the month after that. That's April and always happens at the end of that month. And this is the end of April. So today's the day that the inflation or and or CPI number comes out. So I'm not going to opine on that. Well, let's just see what they say and... Uh, you know, what they're talking about, you know, the speculation around the place is that, you know, inflation could come in around about 1.7, 1.8, way below trend. Don't forget, RBA wants to see inflation between 2 and 3%. I'll talk about the RBA minutes a little bit later, but it's important because the RBA is looking for more data, more and more data. They need more data to make decisions on whether they should in- increase or reduce interest rates or leave them the same when they meet next Tuesday, the next Tuesday of, sorry, the first Tuesday of May next month. 
So that, that inflation number that comes today is actually pretty important overall. Unemployment? Well, there is an unemployment number out. Um, the unemployment number out came this week. The unemployment number was at uh, 6.1%, it's, which is 0.1% lower than the, where it was last time the numbers uh, were reported. It was 62 before. What is, what's good about that is it's not showing an increasing trend, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's, uh, you know, it's just one reduction. It doesn't mean it's on its way back down to 55 um, if anything, it just means it's just sitting around trend, around 6.2. So nothing earth-shattering about the inflation number that came out uh, – sorry, the unemployment number that came out uh, yeah, uh, this week. Um, it, what it does say to the Reserve Bank is, look, unemployment is still relatively high relative to last year, this time last year. So it keeps the Reserve Bank on alert um, in, in, and in readiness to keep a stimulatory regime in relation to interest rates. Other than that, all the rest of the stuff that re- you, you might read about is all rubbish. Okay, so let's talk about the RBA minutes. So the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia releases minutes about their meeting that they had at the beginning of the month. They release the minutes, which is like the, the bulk of their discussion, um, summarised, of course, and uh, to some extent, I guess, sanitised, um, towards the end of the month. So the RBA minutes that came out this month are, are relatively unimportant in my view given what we all already know about what the RBA thinks. I think some of the significant stuff that did come out of, though, in the detail sits around what they think about housing prices, housing prices, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne. Now, what the RBA said was house prices across Australia are rising, but that's a national average. So that is taking all the house prices in every city, every single city in the country and averaging them out across, across the country. They then pulled out of the data Sydney, Melbourne, saying Sydney is rising strongly, Melbourne to a lesser extent, and then house increases and or no increases in and residential increases around the rest of the country are varied. So some places are doing well, some places are just average, some places aren't doing all that well. So when we hear about the prices of real estate getting out of control, in other words, being too exuberant, they're really talking about Sydney. And Sydney alone. Now, Sydney represents a big percentage of the national number. There's probably 40% of all house prices are weighted towards Sydney house prices. Sydney house prices are growing rapidly. The Reserve Bank did not really say they didn't like it or they they did like it. They, They were neutral on it. They did say, though, they are working with the regulators, which is um, ASIC, which is the corporate regulator, and APRA, which is the banking regulator around lending criteria. And in particular, they sort of honed in on investment uh, buying, people who buy houses for investment purposes. So they're talking to the regulators about that, about how they can sort of create a better credit environment. In other words, they want to make sure that lenders are regulated in terms of the amount of money they'll lend to borrowers to buy investment properties, which in course, in due course, will affect the demand for investment properties. In terms of owner-occupier, I don't really think they're that concerned about owner-occupier prices, um, other than noting that Sydney is getting a little bit out of control, in other words, growing at a faster rate than the rest of the country. The Reserve Bank is not an organisation who will sit down and change interest rates one way or the other based on an asset class in a particular territory. Other than that, the rest of the Reserve Bank minutes give us no more depth, colour, or um, insight that other than what we already know about what they're thinking about interest rates. They are basically saying they are on the ready to reduce rates if required. They are in the mood to continue to stimulate the market with interest rates. They acknowledge that the mining sector is not adding anything to the system. In fact, is going backwards in terms of investing in our country, more money, um, and that's largely around commodity prices as I started off talking about. And then they noted uh, what's going on globally. So there was not much more in those minutes other than their notations about Sydney house prices. Now, you know, it's, it's a quite an interesting environment. I keep hearing people say to me, oh, Mark, you know, house prices in Sydney got out of control. Uh, well, maybe they are in certain parts of Sydney, but that's not something that applies to the rest of Australia. Mark, just on that, sorry, hi everyone, this is Jess, Mark's producer. Uh, 
I, I'm actually thinking about selling my place at the moment and moving to uh, a different suburb. H- how can I tell whether now is the right time? I, you know, everybody says, well, it's a great time to sell, but I've got to buy in exactly the same market. What, what can I, what should I be looking for? Well, Jess, I know we've had lots of discussions on this and, you know, and, and by the way, your representative of just about everyone ever talks to me about the same, same question. Um, I guess the reason – well, what's the reason you're, you are selling and or buying after that? We need a bigger house. Okay. Well, okay, so – We don't need. We'd like a bigger house. You'd like a bigger house because your family's getting bigger. Yeah. Okay. That's, and that's pretty normal. Um, and, and one of the things that's driving Australia, by the way, in terms of our, our Sydney economy, is population growth, which you're now contributing to. Thanks very much. <laughs> and the Reserve Bank would be very happy about that. Um, well, the point is you would like a bigger home to accommodate a bigger family. So – that's the thing that makes a decision as to well, – that's the thing that should influence your decision to buy now. Not whether or not interest rates are low or interest rates are high or prices are high or prices are low. The decision that motivate the thing that motivates you to make the decision is your, your demand, your need. Okay? You want a big house. Yep. Okay? So that's the first thing. Second thing is you're going to go and you're going to buy a house you can afford, correct? You're not going to go and buy something you can't afford. No, I'm too cautious. Well, but no, the banks won't lend you. The bank- they, they're, they're willing to offer a lot of money, though. Yeah, I know, but they base that on your salary. So mm. they say, based on your salary and your partner's salary, um, based on your cost of living, and as I said to you earlier, the regulator is actually looking at credit criteria at the moment, is actually trimming it down, making it tougher. If the bank says to you, or if Yellowbrook Road says to you, look, we'll, we'll lend you the money. We'll lend you this much money based on your information. And assuming your information is correct, which we always verify, banks always verify that, we take the view that we think you can afford it. When we assess you these days, we don't assess you on your ability to afford something based on today's interest rate. We actually add 2% onto the interest rate we're lending you at. To, just to give a buffer in there, that if interest rates increase by 2%, that's eight rate rises, eight that you still can handle it based on your current wages and or salary. Right. So that, that would be great advice for people, though, is, is, is don't work it out on what the current interest rate is. Make sure that you're working out your mortgage repayments if it goes up by 2%, for example, and make sure that you can afford that now. But you, you, that, that's, that, Well, you can do that calculation yourself, but I can tell you now every lender does that themselves for you. Right. So when we work out your ability to service the debt, your affordability index that we own, we make sure that you, we, we embed into the calculation a further 2% on top of the interest rate that's currently being charged to you. Mm-hmm. So we're actually building in a buffer for ourselves because we don't want to have a credit situation where, we can't, where you can't afford it. Mm-hmm. So what comes out of this is this. You would like a bigger home, so now is the right time, not good or bad, the right time to look for a property. And you want to do it in Sydney because so, that's where your job is, so you've got to look in Sydney. Two, you can afford it because a lender is telling you how much they'll lend to you because they've done your affordability analysis for you. The big issue for you that you need to analyse is how secure do you think your job is? That's why unemployment's an important number. <laughs> yeah. How secure your job is, how secure your partner's job is, and do you think the expenses that your family are currently um, experiencing will change? Is there something that will change your expense environment? And by the way, I keep talking about this. This is another reason, by the way, to get trauma and disability insurance because that's one thing that can change. Yeah. You get sick, your husband gets sick, or um, you know, someone you know, could die, you've still got the mortgage payments to make. So it's a good time in these environments when interest rates are so low and we're paying such big prices for houses or properties, it's a good time to protect those things that could can change. And one of the things that will change is your ability to uh, repay your mortgage is if something happens to one of the breadwinners or both. So it's a good time to look at life insurance policies today. And that's above and beyond what you're already being offered through your employer, for example. Yeah, 100% because most most employer insurance policies are being paid through your super and they're like a default situation. So they're, they're not broad coverage. So what you should be doing is talking to you know an advisor – to do an analysis, just get a quick analysis, it doesn't take long, it takes about half an hour, to work out whether or not you're fully insured or properly insured or adequately insured in relation to the mortgage you're about to take out. So what would adequately, you know, is that to, to make sure that you get sort of full salary for the rest of your life or half salary for the rest of your life if you can't 
continue to work? Well, I, I always look at adequately as something that it covers your expenses and leaves something after that so that you're not sort of um, living off the bones of your ass for the next 20 years uh, as a result of some sort of traumatic environment existing in your family. So that well, that's that's probably what I think. I, I, I don't necessarily think it means full salary because that depends on how much your salary is. I mean, if you're on $1.2 million a year, well, you know, that's going to be very expensive insurance policy. It, there is a lot of things you've got to balance up because, you know, you've got to look at the premium every year too and the premium is related to how much the risk is, is for the insurer and the insurer, one of the large components of the risk is how much they have to pay, not just the event of the, the probability event occurring. So um, it's about the gravity of the event occurring. The gravity of the event occurring to an insurance company is the amount. So um, uh, I, I take the view as you've got to look at making sure your mortgage payments are covered and, you, and your family expenses are covered and that, generally speaking, would be enough for me particularly for a young family like you are and, uh, you, you know, you don't want to overstress. You just want to have that peace of mind and that, that coverage if something goes wrong because you're about to make a big decision and that big decision is one you need to make because it's time to move into a bigger environment for your family, your growing family. And, I mean, everybody says to me, oh, should I buy when interest rates are high or low? Oh, interest rates really low. Should I, is it the right time to buy it? Well, look, when interest rates are low, the thing that actually happens is house prices go up. It's no more affordable. I mean, to some extent, it's probably better to buy when interest rates are higher because you're borrowing less because house prices are lower. But that would seem like a really difficult concept for a lot of people. They'd be saying, interest rates are high. Why, why should I buy? Yeah. It seems crazy. Correct. Well, but again, a lender won't lend you the money unless you can afford it. So everyone thinks interest rates are high. I can't afford my mortgage. No. Your mortgage is always going to be affordable if someone gives it to you because they're going to do the affordability analysis for you. And... If you think this through logically, if I buy during a high interest rate environment and my lender lends me the money, which means I can afford it, and and the reason why interest rate would, would be high during that period is because the economy will be flying. So I'm buying at a high, uh, at a high interest rate environment. Generally speaking, that means prices are not going through the roof because less people think they can buy. So you're buying – borrowing, say, $200,000 today to buy a $300,000 property, you can afford it, interest rates are 7%. Guess what happens? When interest rates inevitably go back to 5% or 4% like where they are now because the interest rates work in cycles, your, your payments become lower. And, your, and as a result of your payments becoming lower, everybody thinks, and the interest rate environment is low, everyone thinks it's time to go and buy. So demand for your house will go up, so it'd be so strong that your house price will go up to 500000 so all of a sudden, you made two hundred grand. So if you want to make money on a property, you actually buy in high and uh, hold during low interest rate periods. It's sort of counterintuitive, I know, but that's the way it works. And uh, not many of us get it right. But ultimately, the decision to buy or invest is based on is it the right time? In other words, right for you for other circumstances? And two, secondly, can I afford it? And someone else always do that calculation for you. From Mark's Mind. Okay, Jess, let's get into what's been on my mind for this week. Um, what was on my mind, in fact, was on my mind yesterday. So I was invited to speak at a really good function, which was at a great theatre in the um, the art gallery, New South Wales Art Gallery. It was fantastic. I, I, so beautiful there. Um, and the the what they wanted me to get up there to do was an economics talk, but I said, no, I don't want to do that. And it was only a 20-minute talk, so I had to sort of – refine it. So I just said, look, I want to talk about a topic that's really close to my heart, something that sort of put shivers up the back of my neck. And um, and it's a topic called the Internet of Things, IOT. It sounds very uh, obverse and uh, a little bit out there, but it actually is a, ter- a term of art. The Internet of Things means something. And it's, you know, if you Google IOT or the Internet of Things, you will find pages and pages and pages of references to it. So what does it mean? And is it relevant to anything for that matter? Well, the Internet of Things is about connectivity. And connectivity throughout economic history has always been one of the greatest stimulus for economies, either at a local, regional level or alternatively globally, and has been for thousands of years. For example, a good example of connectivity is the railways. The railways connected place to place in the 1850s to the 1890s, the latter half the 19th century in the United States and allowed things to happen in commerce like transporting 
nickel and or silver from one place to another place so that you could sell it to India, you know, west coast to east coast. Um, so anything that creates connectivity, generally speaking, uh, creates commerce and commerce, of course, creates and stimulates good economic times and the United States experienced that. Motor vehicles, another example, connecting place to place, um, telephones connecting person to person and then, of course, internet which connected person to person but not just at a local level but for free connected us all around the world globally. So the internet itself has created this massive globalised commercial stimulus to the world and, you know, there are billions of people today who have mobile phones and there are billions of people today who use their mobile phones to access the internet to find things out and to connect. Now, the Internet of Things is the evolution of the internet. It is the next phase of the internet. So right now, I've got to get this right, but there is the data that exists as a result of the internet and people searching for information and sharing information is around one exabyte, which as I understand it, that is a million terabytes, which is uh, equal to one terabyte is one million gigabytes. So it's we're talking about a lot of information, a lot of data. And what happens is that's data that's been input by people, by humans. And as we and that's just stuff that's been input to date off the internet. So every time we go onto the computer or someone else, we input data and that's data that's been accumulated. The Internet of Things is about things, not people, things accumulating data. And it will happen at a, at, a, at a factor of 10 times what humans enter data is. And the, and the entering the data is very accurate. Humans, uh, a lot of times, are inaccurate in the data we enter. Things, machines, will enter data correctly. They don't make mistakes. They can do it over and over again. So let me give you an example. This chair that is sitting to my right, which you can't see, but I'll just assume there's a chair to my right. Just there's a chair, then you can see the chair. That chair there is a thing. In my left hand, I'm carrying my smart device, my iPhone. Let's assume my iPhone is currently sitting in Russia, in Moscow. The chair is currently sitting in the X studio here in King's Cross. Two things, mobile phone, chair. That chair, now, I'm going to put in there what they call a microprocessor, which basically is a nanotechnology process, like a mini computer. It's just a little chip. And that chip has an address, an IP address, and I will put that, embed that in the back of that chair. And in that microprocessor, which is these things are everywhere in the world today, in that microprocessor, I'm going to put some sensors. So the sensors will sense the heartbeat when Jacob sits on that chair. We can, we can sense his pulse. We'll sense the heat of Jacob coming from his body. And as, in addition to that, there is a Bluetooth reader which will read the fact that Jacob is in there with his Samsung. So my Bluetooth and that microprocessor will access his Samsung and it will identify him as being Jacob. So that little microprocessor, because there's an IP address, will now send a message to me in Moscow saying, Jacob just sat on your chair and, and his heart is beating at this rate and he's giving off so much heat. And he was there between quarter past seven in the morning and uh, quarter to eight in the morning, which means he should have been on the, on the, uh, working his machines. Instead, he was sitting down having a bludge. I then can ring Jacob and say, mate, what's going on? Uh, that is an example of the Internet of Things. Internet of Things is a way of gathering volumes and volumes of data. It depends what you want to do with it. But volumes and volumes of data from anything in the world without having to ring up someone and say, Jess, is Jacob sitting on the chair? What's he doing? I don't have to ring up anymore. And I don't have to worry about your bias. The thing is telling me exactly what's going on because it identifies exactly who it is. So the Internet of Things is a aggregation, a combination of the internet, uh, the ability to embed intelligence through a nano, nano chip, which is about as big as my fingernail, into any place, be able to give it an IP address and then being able to monitor it anywhere in the world. And it's quite a, a very, very powerful, um, a very, very powerful connectivity um, concept that is not only a theory anymore, but is actually being used and currently exists around the world. And it is growing at a rapid rate. 
So they say within 10 years, when they say they say, all the um, uh, technocrats around the world, all the people who understand this sort of stuff, are saying that within 10 years we'll have something like between 3,000, the ability to have something like between 3,000 and 5,000 things attached to our mobile phone. So right now a lot of you have the Find My Phone app. You know, you lose your phone or someone else loses their phone and you can actually go and find your phone. That's an app and that's the reason that works is that's a good example of Internet of Things. That allows the microprocessor that sits in someone else's mobile phone, communicate to you and you communicate to it and send a signal to say this is where the phone is located and the phone will beep, as you know. Well, your mobile phone in due course will have, can have up to 5,000 perhaps more, it depends on how, <laughs> excuse me, how busy you want to be, but things telling you what's going on in a certain environment through sensing, through the microprocessors that are embedded in things. So a good example of where this will actually be a massive fillet for businesses is in e-health, electronic health. So if you're looking to invest in businesses or invest in environments or what's a growing environment that, that I should invest in or I should start to consider and start to follow – Look at those companies that are involved in the Internet of Things for managing data around functionality where people will pay for it. eHealth, I'll give you a good example, pacemaker. Pacemakers can have an IP address in them. So let's say my friend has a pacemaker and we put nanotechnology, just a microchip, which they have anyway, into the pacemaker. And that, pace, and that microchip is connected through the Internet to um, his doctor's mobile phone and his wife's mobile phone. And what happens is that that mobile phone has an exception report on So the app has an exception report. Every time my friend's pacemaker looks like the battery's running out or something's going wrong, needs to be serviced or actually indicates there's a problem with his heart, it sends a message to his health carer. And his health carer, instead of him having to be in hospital all the time, he can stay at home, which actually takes the pressure off the hospital systems, allows you to have home care, but at the same time, you're actually getting monitored 24 hours a day by an e, um, a health carer. And that health carer, by the way, can be located in the Philippines. And that health carer gets an alert that says something wrong with the pacemaker, immediately rings the ambulance and gets around your house to pick you up. So we are going to have a structural change in the way we monitor people. Before, it was person-to-person monitoring. I monitored you if I'm a nurse in hospital at St. Vincent's and I'd be walking every 20 minutes looking at what's going on in the little machine that sits behind you in the bed and I write it up on a board and then I see something wrong or you press a button, something's going wrong or I get sent an alert and I run down the hallway at St. Vincent's and I you know, give you a, you know, a CPR or something, whatever it is. In 10 years now, quickly, that structure is changing and the way the world will run will be different. So that's just one example. There are thousands of examples. Livestock will have embedded a microchip or nanotechnology or nanochip put into their system and a livestock, a cow, an expensive breeder, an expensive bull can actually be geo-mapped. You can follow where they are in in Australia, particularly in a place like Australia where we have millions of acres for, 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 you know, expensive cattle, expensive breeding cattle. You can actually monitor all the things that are going on in the system. You can monitor their health. And, you know, the farmer can go out and find that animal, that particular animal, wherever it is, wherever he needs to find it because it will actually have um, GPS signalling telling him where to, exactly where to go. So livestock will get done. As I said, patients and, and people who are unwell will be getting managed. You know, diabetics will get managed and diabetics will be able to sell, send messages to find out what they've got to do. So it's actually a massive thing, this Internet of Things, connecting machine to machine and gathering data, then sending it to someone who's an administrator just will be a big, big change in the way things are done in this world in the next 10 years. We will not recognise anything. And it's all come about as a result of these iPhones. They're getting more and more – well, not iPhone, just anything. Samsung smart devices are becoming more and more sophisticated. What will it mean for jobs, Mark? Well, I think that, – and that's an interesting – people say to me, oh, well, you know, where should I work? Where should I study? Mm. I think the restructuring will, will offer new jobs, but not jobs like we used to. I'm thinking about nurses, you know, I was picturing you there as a nurse yeah, yeah. Uh, at St Vincent's and, and trying to picture, well, if, if, we, if we don't need so many of them, you know, monitoring things, maybe they'll have a more senior role doing something else rather than this kind of monitoring, as you said, which could build a new economy in, in the Philippines, for example. Yeah, well, I think that it's going to, it's going to be like a displeasure. It's going to actually move jobs to different places where are more where they are more efficient. And what I would hope it would do is actually take, as you just said, 
take the nurses away from being an administrator and get them to actually do nursing and actually you know, use their skill in nursing as less administration, more health administration, more, more medicinal stuff, you know, actually helping people survive, physically helping them survive and take that pressure off the nurses from doing everything from the moment they're in there to the moment they leave. So it really what it should be doing, Jess, it should be creating an efficiency and the efficiency should be actually better off for everybody. And it's actually going to create a whole new environment of jobs. Now, the question is whether the job is going to be here in Australia or some other, somewhere else. And, you know, you just got to get with the program because, you know, globalization's here. The internet is going to enhance and turbocharge globalization. So don't fight against the machine. The machine will, will continue on no matter what you want to do. You're not going to stop that. So you've got to start to work out, well, where do I fit into all this? You know, maybe you want to move to Philippines and become an administrator, perhaps. Um, or then if that's not the case, what course should I be doing to make sure that I take advantage of where the world is trending towards today, where global commerce is trending towards? You know, you know you'll be able to have um, monitors on your kids. I mean, you'll be able to say, well, you know, where's my kid? Uh, uh, you know, and the, I mean, right now you can get it sort of on there if they're carrying an iPhone with them, but you can actually get... You can actually put the sensors into the system so that the iPhones will be able to sensor and or Samsungs will be able to sensor what the kid is doing. So you might be able to have in there, for example, on their, on their, on their smart device, somebody that detects whether they're taking drugs or not, drinking alcohol. Because wow. any sensor, you know, there are sensors for, for drugs or sensors for alcohol. I mean, they do them now. Uh, Lindsay Lohan, whatever her name is, uh, is that her name, Lindsay Lohan? Yep. Uh, my company in America developed the um, ankle bracelet for her that she that um, she was forced to wear to detect whether or not she was drinking alcohol. Oh, she'd be very thankful for that. Yeah, she, she was like? most thankful for that. <laughs> and uh, and that gets sold, sold all across America. Now, that particular anklet actually sent a message to the police to say that she was drinking alcohol. So that same sensing technology with that, um, with that IP address on there would actually tell the police where she was too. So that same thing can be put on a mobile phone and you say to your kids, listen, you want to go out, you're 18 years of age, you want to go out, that's fine, I don't want you drinking. But I'll tell you what we're going to do, we've got to put that app on there and you can't close the app off and I'll be watching the app while you're out having a drink. Now, I'm not, I mean, it sounds a bit nanny state, et cetera, but this is where the world's going. Absolutely. And, and people would want that too, you know. We've, we've got this incredible technology. Let's harness it. Yeah, Let's look after our children. It changes the social structure. Yeah, and you've got you you to harness it. You've got to adopt it and engage with it because you won't stop it. It's just happening. And, uh, you know, you can say, look, I don't want to live in that environment. That's great. You can go and live in the country somewhere. But that's what's going to happen in these big cities. You know, like when you get the message from your kid, the kid's actually drinking and, you, and you start, your start, heart starts to jump up and down a little bit too because be careful because your insurance company, because we talked about insurance earlier, we're going to say, mm-hmm. um, Jess, your heart rate has just jumped up um, and they're going to ping you and they're going to say, well, we're going to increase your insurance premium because you're now at risk. And uh, it'll have on there buy now. On, come up on your screen and you can actually press buy now or reject the offer, which, by the way, if you reject the offer, that might mean if you have a heart attack there and then you're not insured. So, I mean, but by the way, this is actually, stuff that's actually happening. This, this is real and this is what the Internet of Things is about. That's the concept of the Internet of Things. I mean, I could talk about this for hours. It's a very, very expansive thing. It's being adopted in places like Korea and Japan at a really rapid rate, which is not unusual. Singapore. And I, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I come back from the Singapore um, Expo on the Internet of Things, and Singapore has announced it wants to become a the best tech comp- country in the world, which I have no doubt they will because they're small and they're able to do it. They're nimble, um, uh, and they want to try and put sensors on everything. So, you know, a good example, another example of sensors when you when you're um, going into the city, you, le- you leave home, you're on your way to the to the office. You know, normally park somewhere in a street. They have sensors on the car spaces. All the car spaces are uh, taken up, so the sensors send you a message back to your mobile, to your clock phone at home or your, your smart device, which normally wakes you up and says, listen, you normally set the alarm for 6 a.m. today, Jess, but we're going to get you up at 5.30 because of the crap weather. Everybody's decided to drive in the city. There are no car spaces, Jess. Now, this is where the car spaces are. Brilliant. And you'll go, and go to the place where the car spaces are. That's an example of the Internet of Things. It's actually meant to make it a more efficient environment for us. You know, it's going to have a lot of issues around privacy, for example. Absolutely. A good one's privacy. Um, I got, look, my guess is we're going to, our country's going to be run as a technocracy as opposed to democracy. I mean, uh, and I see the government right now, it's all about democracy, you know, like, you know, all these sorts of uh, usual sorts of issues. The government's got to change with this too. So really what the government's going to end up becoming is going to become the policeman on the technocracy. So we're going to look to the government 
to make sure that there is no compromise of our rights. Now, we don't have a Bill of Rights in this country, but we need to start to consider what are our rights around this fast-growing technocracy, which is actually going to take over our lives. And where do we end up with all this? And who's there? Who's going to look after us? And it can only be the government. I mean, I can't look after you. You can't look after me. And I can't look after someone I don't know. So that, And we can't rely on people to do the right thing with data. So... Can we rely on the government, though? Well, that, that's a good question. And, and I really think a good government will start to embrace this stuff and really start to talk about standards and really start to um, build up uh, best practices. Now, no one in the world does this. There is no best practice environment in the world. You know, as an OECD member, Australia could be the first. And this is something that I would urge Joe Hockey as the treasurer to start to embrace how do we protect against the technocracy, particularly things like privacy? Maybe we could go into that uh, in depth next week and have a look at technocracy and also MBN as well. Correct. Entrepreneurs Insight. Okay, well, one of the things, well, not one of the things, I'm often getting asked this question by um, Small to medium enterprises, startups, people in business who are doing well, people, you know, like trying to work out how they can do better in their business. Um, the question I'm getting asked is, you know, what are the main tips that you would employ and I would suggest to them to make their business better and or help them with their startup? And, of course, you know, startups in this country need to be um, encouraged and helped. I mean, I've been watch- I was watching that TV show the other day. Um, what's it called, Nick? Shark Tank, Dragons Den. You know, to be honest, with you, I, I I don't like it. They're just they they're just ripping into them. You know, I, I reckon you should be encouraging entrepreneurs in this country. We should be encouraging small business owners in this country. We need to be actually telling them good stuff. Look, if they come up with a whole lot of crap, yeah, sort of maybe just sort of get into them a little bit. But we need to encourage people instead of just carving them up all the time and saying, well, you know, you reckon this is worth 100 grand, I'll give you 10 and give me 50%. I mean, that's just not fair. I don't like it. It's not cool. What we should do is we should get a few entrepreneurs in here to pitch to us. We'll put a camera on them and get them to pitch to me for five minutes. Let me see if I can make make some good suggestions about their business. And if you were listening to you guys and or may, may want to watch on those particular episodes, if you feel like investing in them, you can put a bid up and try and invest in them. Maybe we'll do it. Why don't we run our own thing, like our own fair deal? What do we call fair deal? Done. Deal. Fair deal. Fair deal. I like it. Okay. Oh, tips. Okay. Well, uh, I'll give you a good one. This one is something that I learned from the master, Kerry Packer. Kerry Packer asked me three questions after they'd spent three months doing due diligence on my business and, you know, ripping me apart. Um, and basically due diligence, the two words for reducing the price. So they reduced the price over a three-month period. Then uh, I had to go and meet Kerry. Now, today I don't really have enough time to do all three questions. So I'll deal with the balance of the questions in the following weeks. But Today's one I would say to you is the first question Kerry asked me. Tell me, he said, I've got three questions to ask you, three questions of DD, of his own DD he wants to ask me. The first question is this. He said, son, what business are you in? And let me give you some context. My business was called Wizard Home Loans. Kerry Packer or his organisation was going to invest up to money to buy into 50% of the business. They just spent three months doing due diligence on the home loan market the company is called Wizard Home Loans. So we did home loans, you know, growth, what's the margins, you know, profit margins, what's the potential, all that sort of stuff. I was puzzled or, or I was quite, yeah, I was very puzzled. Um, in fact, discombobulated is a good word that comes to my mind. When he asked me the question, I'm thinking myself, Kerry, the company's called Wizard Home Loans. Do you know what you're investing in? But I didn't say anything because uh, his response to me as soon as I, uh, as soon as he asked the question within like two seconds, he said, don't say fucking home loans. Um, sort of was a bit of a shock to me because that's exactly what I was about to say and, of course, I didn't know the answer. Uh, he then helped me out. I mean, the guy is a very generous person in, in, in intellectual sense, very generous with his intellect. He said, son, you are not in the business of lending money to people. People don't want to borrow money off you for the next 30 years and have to pay you back for every, every month and with the change in the interest rate and get penalties when they miss payments, etc. You are in the business of people's hopes and dreams. That's a really important point. When you are in business, whether you are working for somebody, whether you're the CEO of that business, whether you've got your own business or whether you're considering starting up a business, know what business you're in and you're not in the business of selling the thing that you think you are selling. So if you're in the mobile phone business, Apple is not in the business of selling a grey or black oblong-shaped box. They're in the business of selling communications, social networks, 
making things easy in your life, allowing you to communicate with your family, allowing you to take photographs of things, allowing you to apply apps for making your life easier. That's the business they're in. In my business, those days was at Home Loans and again today in Yellow Brick Road business, we are in the business of people's hopes and dreams. Everybody has the hope and or dream, just like you, Jess, of having a bigger house, a better house um, and having a comfortable life, having a better retirement. That's pretty basic uh, first base human need demand. If you're an air conditioning guy and you're running an air conditioning business, someone rings you up and says, can you come and give a quote? And it's the middle of summer. You're not out there to sell them an air conditioning unit. You're out there to sell them comfort and peace of mind that the thing is going to be not too expensive in terms of the amount of electricity draws from the grid and peace of mind that you're going to be there to fix it if something breaks down and peace of mind that it's easy to work. It's not too complex. So you're selling comfort and peace of mind in the middle of summer and you know, maybe warmth in the middle of winter. That's your game. So really the point being here from Kerry, you know, by the way, I'd just been examined by guys at PhDs, master's degrees, doctorates, uh, investment bankers, um, management consultants, accountants and lawyers, and not one qu- person asked me that question in that whole three-month period. Could They didn't – not one of them tried to determine whether or not I actually knew about the fundamentals of my business. And by the way, I didn't know the answer either. Um, and Kerry straightened me up day one. Mark, you're in the business of people's hopes and dreams, and I still am. And and we must acknowledge that. And that's got to be your message, and that's got to be how you address people, and that's got to how you, got to be how you build your product and or your service. And that's it's not just about the interest rate. They people want to borrow money from Yellow Brick Road today and Wizard in those days, and know that you're there for the duration of the loan. If some, they need some help, you're going to help them. If they need to vary the loan, you're going to do it for them. If, if or you give them the ability to do that for, uh, themselves through the internet or through your website. It needs to be easy and you need to care about them. How did that change how you thought about this business, about what you'd created? Now you're in the, in the, in the business of hopes and dreams, not mortgages. Well, actually, it's funny you should say because like, I think if you understand your purpose, because really basically it's saying what's your business purpose? That's what he's saying. Do you understand your purpose? Mark? What are you here for? What are you doing? When you understand what I'm doing, it helps you deal with the times when you've got to work out how I'm going to do it. So – you know, when you're sitting up at 2 o'clock in the morning and you're presented with a problem, which invariably happens in all businesses, and you're thinking, how am I going to solve this? And you don't know the answer. Eventually, it comes to you over time. But the thing that gives you the ability to stay on track, particularly when you're a small business because you're on your own, the thing that gives you the ability to stay on track, the thing that gives you that fortitude and that strength is remembering your purpose about what you do. And I'm there to help people with their hopes and dreams, achieve the hopes and dreams, comfortable retirement and a shel- and shelter, roof over the head. And that is a real redeeming feature of understanding what your purpose is. And that is the business you are in. And it's usually around food, shelter, communication, security, entertainment, information, knowledge, community. They're sort of the things that every business somehow attaches itself Relationships, to. Relationships, yeah, yeah. And and they're the bottom line and it, it doesn't matter. And if you want to do well in your business and you're working for somebody, then you, if you understand that, then all the strategies and tactics that you want to build around being better as an employee, that, they should be around those factors. And I don't – I mean I've done seminars with people where I've actually asked, you know, 12 people from big companies, 12 of their leading management, what business are you in? and they don't know the answer. They always give me the same thing, especially IT people, unfortunately. So (laughs) what we need to do is I think we need to um, caucus in business, our senior management, and right right through the whole business. This is what we do. These are the 10 things, the 10 words that best describe what we deliver to our customers, whether it be a product or service, the things that the customer needs, the basic emotion that we're feeding. What is it? And, uh, And then just continually build around that. It's, and uh, you know, like Kerry doesn't have a PhD, but the guy could, the guy could just basically run any business because he just knew the basic information, the most powerful thing that what makes a business work. And I'll give you the other two next week, or give you one next week and one the week after. Ask Mark. Tweet Mark with your questions at Mark Boris. M A R K B O U R I S. So, Mark, people have been sending in loads of questions, wanting to tap into your brain, get some advice uh, on your Twitter handle, at Mark Boris. I've picked a few, which uh, I think you'll really like today. The first one is uh, this this person's looking for a mentor. 
So uh, they're wondering what what qualities should I focus on when I'm looking for a mentor? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, Jess. Because I mean, I get requests to be people's mentor all the time, and I think people assume that if, say, someone like me becomes a mentor, um, that I'm going to give them all the answers. And I, I can't possibly give all the answers. I, I actually think what you should be looking for is someone's going to ask you the questions. Because um, you know the answers and or if you don't know the answers, you should be finding the answers out. So what you need as a mentor is someone who's going to question you. And, you know, I told, we talked about it earlier. Kerry had three due diligence things. Oh, three questions. I gave you the first question. Um, you need somebody who's going to question you and question you and go to the deep, dark part of your business that you don't want to talk about. That's what a good mentor does. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's a one-on-one. It could be someone who you, you listen to on, for example, podcasts you, and you, you garner something out of what that individual has said and you, should, that, and you should form that into a question for yourself. Anybody who asks questions, my view, is generally a good mentor. Just sorry, just something you mentioned then about that deep, dark place. What would that be? That would be your fears about your business mm. that, that you don't really want to touch on because you're focusing on what you're doing well, maybe? And that's yeah, correct, Jess. That's my point. Because if you're going to find a mentor who you're expecting answers from, you'll never ask him the question that is bothering you the most because you'll keep that hidden. And that fear is not revealed and or dealt with whilst ever you have someone you're seeking answers from. You want someone to actually ask you the question so you can deal with that fear. And like they're the sorts of things – like everybody has one, but in every business I've got them, the things that scare me too. And they're, But they're the things you've got to actually focus on. Like what? What scares you, Mark? Market changes, a disruption, a GFC in another form. That I, and I'm always looking to see if there's a GFC coming or, or some sort of crisis arising on the, on the horizon. Um, is there going to be a change to um, the demand for my business? Um, you know, what could change the demand for my business? Am I behind on technology? Have the banks got some new technology tool, some app that I don't have and, and, and how am I going to afford to be able to do it similar to them? So I, I, I'm always looking at my competitors and they're the sorts of questions that Kerry used to ask me. And I mean, he wasn't my mentor as such because I didn't ask him to be and he didn't offer to be, but he just became a mentor by actually being an investor and asking me the questions, which is why it's good actually to have good, solid investors in your own business, not just somebody who gives you money, but somebody who's in your business that actually says to you every quarter, every month, hey, listen, what's happening here? What's happening there? Might only be two questions. That's what a mentor, where a good mentor is, very, very valuable for you. Great. Okay. And the, the second one here, how do I know, just touching on that technology question, how do I know if I'm using technology to the best effect in my small business? Unless you're a technologist, you won't know. So... My view on that is you need to employ someone who actually does that sort of thing. Um, Telstra Small Business is pretty good at this, um, or Telstra Business, I think it's called. Um, they have these centres all around Australia. And I know because I've spoken at a couple where they invite you in and you can come into these business centres and um, you know use their facilities and they have people around there who – obviously they're trying to sell you something, but that's okay. Um, they have people in those environments that they employ that are experts in um, providing technology for most businesses – and they try to kit you up. So maybe make, uh, make use of these environments. They don't charge you to go in there. It's free. Um, you know, they have lots of facilities you can use for free. The, the objective for them is to build up their business around Telstra business or, you know, mobile phone business or IT business. So they're good at it. I guess there'd be other providers. I don't know the other providers, but certainly Telstra is one. So you need an expert in technology. You need someone to advise you on this stuff, you know, right down to, you know, how does everything connect you know, uh, you know, and how do I make sure that I can keep my business mobile and that I never miss any calls and that everything gets returned and, uh, you know, right down to billing systems. Um, they're core technology things you need an expert to help you on. But it's really important. And uh, these big organisations today are smart enough. They're not just product pushers anymore. They used to be just someone, oh, you want to get landline connected, ring Telstra. Well, they're not like that anymore. They're well aware of how business operates and uh, it's particularly small business it's their market. You know, and, and even right down to products, uh, you know, small business products, business products. If you're looking for business products, go to their banks. Some banks specialise in this stuff. NAB and St George in particular specialise in these things. They've got good, solid, small business products. Now, that does involve financial technology because, you know, technology is just, just not IT. It's financial technology too. What products, uh, financial technology products are there out in the marketplace? And look, I'm not trying to say NAB and St. George are saints. I mean, they're far from it. They're, they're banks. But 
the thing is they've worked out that's the marketplace I want to go for and they're going to chase it hard. So they're looking for you and you're the customer they're looking for you. We'll take advantage of it. Go and talk to them. Looking forward, this is the week ahead. Okay, Jess, what's coming up uh, in the next week or so in terms of uh, data and stuff we should be looking out for? Well, the big one that you mentioned earlier in the show was uh, inflation. And we're going to be getting that out actually later today, which is uh, really important. Yeah, so uh, inflation's a big number, as we often talk about. Uh, and obviously, it's something the Reserve Bank's looking for. And if you go back to the Reserve Bank minutes, um, and you, I know you gave me the notes on this this morning, but if you go back to the Reserve Bank minutes, the Reserve Bank's saying, look, we are prepared to reduce interest rates, but what we need is more information. We need more data. I was reading Terry McCrane this morning. He's sort of saying the same thing. And all the papers are full of this stuff. They, the Reserve Bank saying they are prepared to reduce interest rates again, but they need information, they need data. So that CPI number that comes out today is going to be absolutely critical to them because inflation is one of the main uh, empirical or numbers that the Reserve Bank looks for. They're trying to keep the inflation between 2 and 3%. If it's below 2, it means we're not growing at a, at a fast rate. Demand's not there. And, you know, they're talking about, Inflation number is about 1.7, 1.6. That's a little pathetic um, in terms of how we're performing as a nation. So that's a big indicator. So that'll be an interesting one, Just What else is coming out? Anything else valuable? I think that's that's really the big one for this week. Uh, every, everything's moving towards budget, obviously, with uh, yeah. with the uh, federal government uh, putting the final figures together. Well, hopefully they've got it pretty much worked out by now, but uh, that'll be the big one. And uh, look forward to doing a show on that too. You know, we can get your uh, analysis, Mark, on... What it means. So there's there's going to be a lot of analysis, but let's uh, we'll get your take on what it'll mean for for all of us. Try and reduce it down to as low as common denominator, and just summarise what they've been working on for the last twelve months in five minutes. <laughs> but I'm sure we'll be able to do it. <laughs> okay, thanks very much. See you guys. This has been the Mark Boris podcast. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Boris, and find out more at markboris.com.au. 